Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. This is such a busy week. We have so many things to discuss, but I just have to start with the exciting news. Are you excited about Amy Sherman Palladino? Yes, the marvelous Mrs. Meisel has been picked up by Amazon for two seasons. Not just one season, but two seasons, Hollister. I know, right? Yeah. I know. It's funny. I think it's a stronger, I don't know, I think it's a stronger written, you know, base for a series than what she did with Gilmore Girls. I really think it's graduate work for her. I think it's great. I'm so excited. So I thought you'd be really pleased about that. I'm excited because I think it's very much like Gilmore Girls with the rat-a-tat-tat yeah. dialogue, and it's a great part for Rachel Brosnahan. But but it has more layered characters. You know, it's more, I don't know. You know, I, I think it's it's got sort of a history about the culture of the time that the Gilmore Girls didn't really have. I don't know. I'm really excited about it. So I, I can't wait. I think it's Gilmore Girls in the 1950s. Okay, any idea of how much they're being given to do it? No, it didn't even occur to me to think about that. Huh. Do you know? I just, uh, I wonder if they're going to give her carte blanche. Because part of one of the things she said is she was limited by funding when she did Gilmore Girls. So if they give her more money, it'll be interesting to see if she does more with it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Although, as we know, more money doesn't always mean a better quality show. Well, more is sometimes just more, not necessarily better. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Yep. All right. Now, also, it's the 50-year anniversary of The Graduate. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. And they're relaunching it this month in selected theaters, and they're doing a 4K restoration. Now, because you're in film, what does that mean? It's a very, very high-def restoration. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that means they're really going to crack it up there. And, I, you know, we, we decided to start something new. We're going to do hashtag blast from the past film. And I think this should be this month's blast from the past to watch The Graduate. Yes, and last week at the River Run International Film Festival, we saw Catherine Ross in a new film, The Hero, which you and I are going to be talking about in a couple weeks when it gets theatrical distribution. But the director said that was the first part offered Catherine Ross in 10 years. What? Yep. So she starred with her real-life husband, Sam Elliott. It was a great movie. I can't wait to talk about it. So look for our Blast from the Past uh, hashtag film, Blast from the Past films, and and take a look. So we're going to pick The Graduate for this week. And The Graduate was the first movie to ever use... Don't tell me. Oh, I know. Paul Simon. It, yes. To use music. Yeah. Pre-existing music yeah. in a movie. Here's yeah. to you, Mrs. Robinson. Mm-hmm. Up until then, everything was an original score. Speaking yeah. of which, I'm sure you saw the email from Janet in New Jersey who wrote in to us about our podcast, the, the bonus podcast that we put up about score, the documentary. Yeah, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to it, you know, we're not putting it up uh, in such a major way, but it's in SoundCloud and you should go definitely take a listen. And she mentioned Rachel Portman being one of her favorite composers for film. Mm. And Hollister, she was actually in the documentary score that we saw. So I had to look her up. She she that obscure woman that was sitting in the background? She was the one playing the piano at the beginning. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. She maybe had five seconds. I know, (laughs) which is a shame because she has 98 credits to her name. And I had no idea until I saw Janet's email and I looked it up. She has done so many movies that you and I have mentioned on this podcast. Huh, I had no idea. Yeah, Mona Lisa Smile, which I know you loved. Uh-huh. Chocolat, The Cider House Rules, which was another All one of her Oscar nominations. The Other Sister, which I know you loved. 
Marvin's Room, The Joy Luck Club, A Dog's Purpose, and Emma, for which she won the Oscar. And she also, thanks, Janet, for sending us also another little note saying that she loved our discussion of feminism and captivity in the script, but she interpreted it very differently. And now you're talking about Beauty and the Beast. Yes, Beauty and the Beast. And I thought it was worth sort of hearing her point of view. She said, I don't know your politics, but mine creep into my interpretation of the theme of the movie. I believe it is about being open to others despite their outward appearance, which obviously it is. Clearly, Belle has to learn to see the inside of the beast, not just judge him by his outward appearance. And the townspeople, by the end, learn to do the same. An outward judgment of Gaston makes him a handsome hero, but we know that his inner soul is vindictive and narcissistic. And even the beast finally sees Belle for more than simply a pretty face and the means to break a spell. In this time of condemning others for their outward appearance or race or religion, nationality, ethnicity, or gender, this movie teaches us that there's more to each of us than seen on the outside. Ha! Some speech, huh? But from the heart. I thought it was a great point, so thanks for sending that in. I think Janet should be doing marketing for Disney. <laughs> okay, now tomorrow a movie's opening, and I wa- I'm just wondering if we're going to do it next week and if you're going to tell me to go first thing tomorrow to see... <laughs> I won't be telling you, know you to I'm go first about? thing tomorrow to see because I, I don't know which movie you're referencing. Okay, well, I, I Quiet Passion. Remind me. It's so quiet, apparently. Oh, my I didn't God, even... Emily Dickinson. Oh, The Recluse, the one that Cynthia Nixon is starring in. Yes. Are you in or are you out? I don't know that I like narrative representations of Emily Dickinson. Interesting. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. You are alone in your rebellion, Miss Dickinson. Okay, I'm going to go see it. So, and I'm excited about it. And also, I'm excited to see Cynthia Nixon get real, a real role, a starring role with some meat on it. Aren't you excited to see what she can do with it? I thought she was the most improved character on Sex and the City. So I (laughs) am curious to see her play Emily Dickinson, who, as we know, shares my birthday. I know she does, which is why I thought you'd want to see it. I'm so disappointed that you're not jumping at the bit and telling me to go tomorrow. But I'll because live with people myself. born on that day is the day of the recluse. We don't know, really exactly. jump up and run under to the, the bed. Emily is what I call her. <laughs> um, hide under the bed. Okay. Also, they're going to announce next week the shows that will not see their next season um, next year, where they're canceling them. And among the suspects are two that I just wanted to bring up. One is Ransom. Have you seen any of the episodes on CBS? I have not, but just from what you just said, TV has gotten so competitive that I feel like nowadays they have to scrounge some movies together for the awards <laughs> nights. And TV, it's all about what's about to get canceled because there's just so much quality TV out there. A lot of good shows just fall by the wayside. Well, that's why I'm bringing up Ransom. I ha- just happened upon it about 10 days ago, and I watched two or three episodes, all of which were excellent. And it's actually based on um, a real-life negotiator who goes in when people have been kidnapped to negotiate with the kidnappers, which I never even knew took, you know, happened, that you negotiated. I figured you gave the money and the and got a back, person back, or you didn't. But um, you know, That makes me think, Hollister, that negotiation might not be our forte. I know. Well, certainly not mine. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Uh, but anyway, I'm sorry to see it go because I think it needed a little work, but I think the potential of it was tremendous, and I'm surprised that they're letting it go so early. That's number one. And Quantico is going, and you may recall that when we reviewed Quantico, when it first came out, um, it just finished its, it's finishing its up its second season now. 
I thought the first season was excellent. I felt like I was back with Clarice in Silence of the Lambs, and <laughs> I thought it was going to be really, really cool. And what happened was in the second season, they lost 35% of their viewership. They were very strong the first season, doing really well. They lost 35% of their viewership, and I think it's because they took everybody out of the training center and put them into oh. a terrorism field, and I think it just wasn't of interest anymore, and I think all the millennials left. And it just goes to show, you know, when you're when you're working on something like that, you have to pay attention to what people loved about it. And I don't think that they loved about it that they were going to fight terrorism. They loved that you got to see the inner workings of training people for the FBI and their personal stories. And once they took that away, I stopped watching it. So You know, Hollister, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. It's kind of like the success in terms of longevity of Grey's Anatomy, where they kept the interns in the hospital. They took them out of the hospital and off the map, and that got canceled after its first season. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, yeah. Sex and the City, everybody loved seeing them in New York. They went to Dubai in one of those <laughs> film versions, and it, it was, was terrible. a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think in TV especially, you should keep them in that special world that they create episode after episode. Well, I think in Sex and the City, they they what they didn't recognize when they took the two films um, is they thought that it, that the the people were following it because of the characters the people were following it because of the lifestyle of the characters in my opinion and so the minute the lifestyle went away i.e. going away internationally the lifestyle that they were leading in new york city was gone and i think that was the draw i don't think it was the character development so well, you could argue that we're both agreeing because New York was its own special character on Sex in the City, and then they just dropped that character. Um, Anyway, I just wanted to mention those two, and we'll certainly pay attention to what's leaving, and we hope none of our listeners' favorites are leaving, but hang tight and look for it next week. Okay, and those who did watch those shows, now they can watch The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel. (laughs) There's always a new gift right around the corner. (laughs) Well, I know, but how long is it going to take them, do you think, to get the first season out? Well, if it's Amy Sherman Palladino, she's probably already got it ready by tomorrow's lunch. Right. You know? I hope hope it's not two years. Do you know what I mean? I just hate it when we wait and wait and wait for the next segment of something. So I don't think they could wait that long to lose all the actors. But the fact she got the pilot up while they were still doing the Gilmore Girls revival is remarkable. You're right. She Mm -hmm. can do it quickly. We're going to count on her. So that's our message. Hurry, hurry. My life fell apart today. My husband left me. So yesterday I watched, all right, I watched it twice. Okay, I'm lying. I watched it three times. Wow. The, do- the Showtime's documentary on the making of Pet Sounds, which is Brian Wilson's greatest achievement from the Beach Boys and one of my very favorite pieces of music of all time. It's 59 minutes um, and filled with a backstory that had me on the edge of my chair. Literally, I was leaning forward. And the last seven minutes are are all around God Only Knows, which, of course, I've mentioned before. Paul McCartney says it's the greatest rock song ever written. And it, we find out in this film, by the way, it was written in under an hour. See, again, <laughs> sometimes less is more. I know, more is exact. Sometimes more is just more is one of my comments. But um, I want to play here the only time that McCartney sang the song. And 
he sang it in a duet with Brian where he said afterward that he got through the performance okay because he kept focusing on Brian. But during the rehearsal and sound check, he couldn't get through it. He just kept breaking down crying because he said he can't listen to this song without crying because he finds it so moving. And uh, just, uh, you know, I, the, the song's been used in so many movies. It's been moved in boogie. Here's, here's what's so interesting about it. It was used in Boogie Nights, Love okay. Actually, Scooby-Doo, My Life Without Me, and Enduring Love, just to name a few. But the interesting part for me is Boogie Nights and Love Actually, two, you know, two very, very different things. You know, they're very lucky that Mike Nichols thought of using pre-existing music in The Graduate, because look at how many royalties they must have made from that slew of films you just rattled off. I thought you're not about the money, O'Toole. I'm not, but you've, you've, you've turned me to the dark side. Excuse me. <laughs> we experimented on Pet Sounds, I tried right. Something better than the, the surf songs in car song. He really, boy, he blossomed. Yeah, everybody could see Brian evolve as a songwriter composer. I came along when he broke. There's a standout performance in this, and the guy's name is David Wilde. And he writes on all things music, I guess, for the, for the Rolling Stones. And he's on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at WildAboutMusic. And you got to start following him because his information, everything he puts out about it is just crazy, crazy good. I'm following him now and loving what he has to say. And here's a quote, um, which I already put up on social media and we got a nice response from it. So he said, imagine that the opening line of perhaps the greatest love song ever written is, I may not always love you. Wow. Talk about a show-stopping moment. So it's only one hour. My cousin watched it on Amazon because he, like me, loves that loves that uh, album. And so I made him watch it. He's watched it a bunch of times already. We've been going back and forth. Well, they have actual footage, by the way, of, of some of the tapings. You know, documentaries can just bring something that you've loved alive in a really, really authentic and an exciting way. And I'm so grateful to have seen this. So showtime, well done. Hollister, I have to ask, you have to initiate the uninitiated. When I saw that tweet from him. Oh, my new my new big love? I don't uh-huh. think he knows that I'm madly in love with him. But yes, <laughs> David Wilde, go ahead. I thought they might be Foley artists. You have to explain to me this title. Oh, Pet Sounds? Oh my God. Okay, they talk about, the album was named, I think, by somebody else. Brian didn't name it. Okay, and then the studio, when they put out Pet Sounds, um, they didn't think it was good music because they it was against the formula that had already been work, you know, working. Surfing USA, surfing this, you know. As Brian Wilson says in it, they were all songs about either surfing or being in the car. And... <laughs> So I think it was I think it was Love who by the way was furious about this album didn't like it probably cuz he didn't write it with them. Anyway, so they named it Pet Sounds and the music company said, "Well, we don't even know how to market this. Okay, we're going to have you go to the zoo and take pictures with animals." And so <laughs> Now, by the way, I don't know why Brian Wilson and his team didn't say, we're not doing that, you know. So what they did was they went, and the animals at the zoo hated them, and they were biting them, and it was a miserable shoot. They go into this, and, and one of the Beach Boys, I can't remember which one, says, looks directly in the camera, and he says, it was just clearly a travesty of justice. So, so, so the label was so upset about this album and so sure that it wasn't good, even though it's now considered to be one of the best albums of all time, that 
they put out at the same time the best of the Beach Boys, and they put all their play behind that album, which of course shot to the top of the tracks, and then Pet Sounds did not. The best Pet Sounds ever did was number 40 on on the roster, although now, you know, as somebody in one of the Beach Boys says, you know, it took 40 years for it to go platinum. So it didn't sell well out of the gate, but the songs, of course, did, and God only so knows. There's, there's no actual Pet Sounds in Pet Sounds? Like, even well, though they brought went and had sounds, the film No, he brought Pet scene. Sounds into the studio and then ended up not using them. Oh, that's a pity. Um, which I know from reading more about it than probably anybody should. But Alistair, I know you're so big on titles. Do you like the title or would you have called no, it something else? I don't like the title. No. And you would have but called it. But I don't like it. any title. But I sure oh. love the music and I sure think that God Only Knows is, in my mind, the best song ever written. I'm thinking of robbing a bank. I'm thinking about buying a Ferrari. I just got drafted by the Knicks. Could we ferry about it, huh? Before we start talking about the movie I saw, Going in Style, which uh, you may have heard about or not, but it's where Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine, Alan Arkin, and Aunt Margaret come together in what's um, what's supposed to be a comedic bank heist caper. Um, we'll go into what it is later, but we thought it would be fun to do the list of six, which you came up with, O'Toole, which I loved. Well, it's funny because the minute you said you were going to go see that movie, I thought, okay, first of all, it sounds like grumpy old men are back because Anne Margaret's in it. But my first comment, you'll recall, is I feel like I've already seen that movie, and that's what inspired the list of six this week was our six favorite bank robbery movies. <laughs> Well, let's call them heists because it's just such an elevated oh, word. Nice okay. word, they're Hollister. Yeah, I saw so it's our it's our list of six is bank heist movies. Okay. 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 You want to lead us off? First on my list would be The Inside Man. Oh my God! I never even saw it. When was it done? Two thousand six, and it really? is easily my favorite Spike Lee movie. Oh. And it's got a cast you would love because it's got Jodie Foster, Clive <gasps> Owen, Denzel Washington. I loved the narrative structure of this film. Oh my God, how did I miss this? My name is Dalton Russell. Pay strict attention to what I say because I choose my words carefully and I never repeat myself. It's a bank robbery and a hostage situation. Check it out, Inside Man. Oh, I'm going to put it on my list right away. Maybe that Excellent. should be our blast from the past hashtag, you know? It's so sad that 2006 is becoming that remote, but yes. I know. I know. I'm so surprised. I mean, that's only 10 years ago. It's not really. I thought you were going to say 1954 or something, you know? <laughs> okay, Town is my first one. Oh, nice and choice. And you know that I'm not a Ben fan, you know? I'm not you know, in the least to Ben Pham, but I love that movie. That opening with them wearing those those masks that just put terror in me and the nuance of, of this girl for most of the film not knowing who she was falling in love, I, it, it's just amazing. I thought it was really, really good. And it has such authenticity because Ben Affleck, you know, he's from Boston. Yeah, Charlestown yeah. is considered by many to be the bank robbery capital of the world, or at least they turn out all these bank robbers. Yeah, Ben Affleck, I saw him give an interview. He went and interviewed real-life bank robbers and added some of the anecdotes they told him right into his script. (laughs) Oh, my God, I had no idea. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Was that on your list? I left myself a little bit of flexibility because I figured it would probably overlap somewhere, and I would just give you the contents of the safe. (laughs) Okay, so what's your next one then? My next one is a movie called Henry's Crime. It came out in 2010, and it stars Vera Farmiga, who you know I loved in Up in the Air, Keanu Reeves, James Caan, and it's kind of a fun movie because they embed a theatrical production into this film. 
because there's a theater next door to the bank they want to rob. Well, that's why you like. You know, it well, no, no, not necessarily yeah. because it was the cherry orchard, and you know where I stand on the cherry orchard. Mm-hmm. But what's the little twist is that Keanu Reeves has gone to prison for a crime he didn't commit. So once he's released, he's like, what do I have to lose? I might as well commit the crime they thought I already did. <laughs> and I thought it was kind of fun. Huh. You know what? I think I did see that. It didn't have a major impression on me, though. But I did see that. Yeah, I thought it was well done. Well done. Well done. Okay, my second one is Ocean's Eleven. The original or the remake? Uh, the remake with Julia Roberts. Okay. But I just I just like it because there was a girl in it. And it made me, when I realized that I was looking for at least one heist film with, with a woman in it, they somebody should do a great female heist movie because it hasn't been done. Well, they tried with that Diane Keaton, Queen Latifah. Yeah, but that was ridiculous. I mean, that was stupid. You know, it was silly. Okay, so, and your last? My last one has a woman in it as well, Charlize Theron. It's an international gold heist from 2003. All three of mine are from this millennium. The Italian Job. The Italian Job. Yes, with Mark Wahlberg, Donald Sutherland, Edward Norton. They had a huge cast, beautiful cinematography. It's the one with the Mini Cooper where that little Mini Cooper should have won the Oscar for Best Car. Well, probably made everybody buy them. You you put together three films, none of which I that I've really paid any attention to, that now I want to go and watch. Well done. Really well done. Excellent. Okay. Maybe we should be at a pitch fest I know, right? right? Yeah, at a heist fest. <laughs> okay, so my last one, I couldn't decide between two. So I'm going to read them off, and you pick which one I talk about. Ready? So one is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and the other one is Bonnie and Clyde. So which do you want me to do? Okay. I know you hate um, you hate it when I, I do. do Can I just say I can't believe this is hard for you. I am shocked that you can't do this for me. Okay, it's pick a one. double foul. I mean, first of all, you didn't really limit yourself to three, and then you're asking a middle child to choose, choose between yes, two children. Choose right now. Pick okay, one. Okay, I'm gonna go with the latter. With Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't have much to say about it, but I know it's a really good movie, and I haven't <laughs> seen it in 40 years. I'm talking about the one with Faye Dunaway. And you know who was in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Catherine Ross. I know, she was. And mm-hmm. I'm sort of sad that you didn't pick that one for me, but okay, you picked Bonnie. Should we just rewind the tape? No, Pretend no, no, no. Like I'm good with Butch it. I'm Cassidy. good with it. But Bonnie and Clyde, you know, won a million awards, and... You know, the the juxtaposition between the two of them was as important as, as, as the heist and an amazing film. You know, to be watched over and over again, I'm sure, by cinema film buffs and, and, and classrooms everywhere. Which would be nice because then they'll stop watching Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty presenting at the Oscars this year. I know. Well, that didn't work out so well either. By the way, they didn't do well in their heist and, and in the end they died and frankly, they died again. You know, So there you go. Kind of like a heist where PricewaterhouseCoopers got arrested. <laughs> I know, right? um, that was really funny. I really like that. Anyway, okay, going in style. So I got to start again with Morgan Freeman and Alan Arkin and Michael King and Anne Margaret, and they were supposed to be this comedic bank heist caper. Jump in the basket. Who the hell you think I am? E.T.? I don't know what's going on in the world anymore. <laughs> but instead, it's just an embarrassing confirmation that you should leave the party before you embarrass yourself. Oh, no. I know. I. It's so funny that you bring up Jack Lemmon and Margaret and Grumpy Old Men with Walter Matthau because I went back and watched it after I came back from this film, because I was trying to determine, was it the script? Because Grumpy Old Men is very similar. 
but it wasn't mm-hmm. just the script. It was all. It was also the acting. The the acting. Oh, no. Yeah, the acting between Matthau and Lemon can never ever ever be touched. And these three guys didn't come together well, maybe because they're so used to being individual. You know, all of them, if you look at their roles, are sort of strong. So I don't really have that much to say, but um, but I think they should, instead of instead of doing, you know, a, a film like this, they should really all be, you know, um, commandeering writers to write great scripts for them about issues of interest to that generation because they just totally missed the boat. We're going to need professional help, you think? Let's just say that those three men, though, have done, I don't know, some of the greatest acting of our time in some way. So I would just thought I would give you two movies from each of them so we don't have to leave them in this shadow of, of, of lack of dignity and really just nothing good to say about this. <laughs> wow, okay. I know. All so right, well. Morgan, The Shawshank Redemption, okay, is it's just enough to make you want to go inside, Go ahead, arrest me, and I gotta go meet Morgan inside something or other. You prefer jail to the bank and driving Miss Daisy. That was a great Come movie. on, mm-hmm. I, I just I was changed forever. You know, I saw it done as a play on Broadway, and uh-huh. it starred James Earl Jones and Vanessa Redgrave. Another great cast. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised they didn't bring them into play. But anyway, uh, so I want I want to remember him that way. I'm certainly not going to sit there and going in style. And then we have Michael Caine. Cider House mm-hmm. Rules, Mesmerizing. Which now we know, Rachel Portman did the music. I know, mm-hmm. and I chose The Eagle Has Landed for the other thing to go back and think about him in. You know, I think I would have chosen Educating Rita. And then also Alan Arkin. So Alan Arkin, I didn't, I've never thought of in the same category necessarily as Michael Caine or Morgan Freeman. But, you know, Little Miss Sunshine, come on. He was the mm-hmm. perfect foil for that young girl. You know, he just helped her through... A brilliant, brilliant performance. Really, really great. I then went back to The Russians Are Coming, where he shows how comedic timing is done. So I just felt like I was better to take the five minutes and not talk about something that they should take out of style. It's not going in style at all. It's out of style. Do not go. Do not watch it on Netflix. Do not pass go. Do not pay $200 to get out of jail. No, (laughs) not so much. Well, Hollister, you're not done yet. I'm not. You need to give Anne Margaret her two movies. You know, I, I'm not a Margaret fan. I don't know. No, there you go. Let's go get our money back. All right. And so you had an exciting time at the River Run F- International Film Festival, which I had to leave. But you saw uh, an incredible, um, uh, what was it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they honored Jane Alexander this year with the Master of Cinema Award. Jane Alexander as in Kramer versus Kramer. Yes, and all the president's men. She's one of these people who's done so much and has never I know, and you just really, don't remember. The fame just mm-hmm. hasn't really attached to her. I mean, <laughs> no. she's been inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame. She was nominated for seven Tonys, won one, nominated for eight Emmys, won two, nominated for four Oscars. I didn't realize before this festival, she had been the chair of the National Endowment of the Arts. She was the chair of the uh, the National Endowments for the Arts? Huh, busy lady. She was the first person from the performing arts to actually chair the NEA. Now, you put a wonderful video up that I loved. Uh, you put a wonderful video up and that people should go look at. Can you just tell everybody what it's about? They hosted a screening. And Hollister, remind me what your hashtag was that you came up with. 
our throwback. Hashtag blast from the past film. Okay, so I'm going to do another hashtag blast from the past film. The River Run International Film Festival hosted a screening where Jane Alexander was there to answer questions of The Great White Hope, which was a movie she did in 1970 with James Earl Jones, who most of us... Which, by the way, I hadn't heard of till you told me about this, and I went and downloaded it. The most honored play in the history of Broadway becomes an electrifying motion picture. <laughs> the Great White Hope. James Earl Jones plays the reigning heavyweight champion of the world. He attempts to cross state lines with Jane Alexander, who's white, and because she's white and he's black, he's sent to prison. So they escape. And the poster back then in 1970, this was the tagline. I thought this was brilliant. He could beat any white man, but he couldn't beat them all. That's the hashtag. It was done on Broadway first. They both won the Tony And then they both made the movie together. So watching this movie, it felt current in many ways. It reminded me... Weren't they also... Didn't they have a terrible time when they were doing that play? Weren't weren't there death threats? There were death threats. There were a lot of firsts in this film. Uh, Not just the film, but the stage play. We were the first interracial couple to be in a bed together on stage. Mm -hmm. The audiences the first year on Broadway went from 90% white to 80% black in one year. And that was fascinating to experience. I had death threats, and they were from white bigots, all of them. The black audience cheered when I died, (laughs) a lot of them. And James Earl found that very, very hard to take. And sometimes he just could not stand it, and he'd stop, stop, and just stand there and look at the audience. Are you laughing at? And I was dead. Jimmy, don't go on anymore. I can't breathe. So as she pointed out, in many ways we've made progress, but there's still a long Uh way to go. Um, But there were two movies that came out this past year that resonated with me watching The Great White Hope in 2017 with Jane Alexander. One of them is a movie that you reviewed, Fences, because you'll recall that's also a two-hander movie, Viola Davis, Denzel Washington. They did it on Broadway first. They both won the Tony, and then they made the movie together, and it got a lot of Oscar buzz. With Fences, though, my criticism was they just basically filmed the play, and they didn't incorporate it the way I felt they should have into the environment of a movie. Mm-hmm. Is Does this have the same issue? Well, if you watch the little video clip on ScreenThoughts.net, Jane Alexander herself points out it's a very theatrical production, this film, uh-huh. but it really worked uh-huh. in the 1970 filming of The Great White Hope. So they kept all the drama and the great mm-hmm. dialogue, but it didn't have that same sense that I know um, you mentioned. Now, had you fences. seen the movie when you went to hear this uh, panel? No, I saw it live for the first time standing next to Jane Alexander because I was there with my camera. So it was really fun to hear when she laughed and, you know, moments that she, um, you know, was recalling live with us as she watched it. And the other movie that came out last year that it reminded me of is another movie you reviewed, Loving. Again, yeah, into an interracial couple. Yep. And what's really interesting about that is Jeff Nichols, who wrote it and directed it, he is a graduate of the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, 
which is where Jane Alexander received her award. I'm telling you, it's a full circle. And as you say, there's zero degrees of separation. Hollister, I got to tell you, there were many things about Jane Alexander I did not know before this festival. She is a huge conservationist. She was a trustee of the Wildlife Conservation Society. She sits on the board of the National Audubon Society. And she's currently on book tour with her newest book, Wild Things, Wild Places. Which you read, right? It was a book I really enjoyed because it was all about our connection to nature and the universal experience. Mm-hmm. She said something that I thought was really interesting. She was talking about how birds are shapeshifters. Wait, what does that mean? My shape shifts all the time, but I have no idea what a shapeshifter is. It's a term for mythology, a creature who's able to transform themselves, either in shape or in spirit. And she said this was a concept that was familiar to her because actors are shapeshifters, where they shift into another persona, and yet it lets them stay connected with the universality of all human experience. That's really interesting. It was a very interesting book. She mentioned that Glenn Close is also a huge conservationist. I had no idea. Jane Alexander said she was looking for something she could do when she was traveling around the world filming on all these sets. And she said bird watching was easy. It was free. You can do it anywhere. If you have binoculars, it's a plus, but you can do it by yourself. And she started bird watching and she got really into it. So she mentioned a statistic that is so sobering. I just wanted to share it with you. Okay. She said since 1970, when this movie was made, the planet has lost two thirds of all vertebrates. Oh, oh my which God. is enough to be pretty depressing, right? But yeah, in her depressing. book, she said, and I thought this was great, that someone once pointed out to her, one of these great conservationists, that to be a conservationist, you have to be an optimist. And to be a successful conservationist, you have to focus on inclusion. Interesting. Fabulously interesting. I want to play one other clip here. Okay. Hollister, I thought you would find this very amusing. They asked her about her role in the Terminator movie, Terminator Salvation, the one with Christian was she Bale. In it? <laughs> yeah, she was with Christian Bale and Sam Worthington. I missed that one. I, I must have been traveling. <laughs> she originally had a bigger part. And check out this clip. I did. I had a wonderful role, guys, and I was going to save the world. (laughs) Really, I was going to push the button that got rid of Skynet and self-sacrifice myself. I said, this is great. An old woman gets to save the world. (laughs) And we're in the middle of shooting, and the director says to me, in front of Christian Bale, and we're about to shoot a scene and everybody, he says, oh, Jane, by the way, Warner says we can't kill the old lady. <laughs> Christian's going to pull the bu- push the button. I said, what? <laughs> and Christian's looking over at me like they didn't tell you. <laughs> I can't believe that. Oh, for God's sake. You know, women in combat, just let us t- let us have that moment. Oh, my goodness. You know, she could have gone in style. I know. But no. Right? <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, okay, well, this was a big week. We had a lot of stuff to see. Maybe we'll go see something together next week. What do you think? I think that would be fabulous. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking Emily under the, under the bed. <laughs> so do you have a quote? Come on. Do you, oh, you must have one. Do you have one? I'm a nobody. <laughs> and who are you? Are you nobody, too? then there's a pair of us. (laughs) All righty then. I'm not nobody and neither are you is my answer to Emily under the bed hiding. And this is why Emily never ran a marketing department. (laughs) 
Okay, over and out. See you all next week.